When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, an astrobiologist shares his theory of panspermia and scientific evidence that humans and all other life on Earth came from space. I think there would be a, a vast amount of overlap between the life that exists here and the life that exists on these other habitable planets, assuming that the habitable planets have exactly the same conditions, the watery conditions, the atmosphere conditions that we have on the Earth, because the components are going to be the same. Components are truly cosmic. The basic body plans, the basic structures, the basic engineering aspects of living systems would be universal. This podcast is brought to you by Paranormal Contractors. You'd be shocked to know how many people are experiencing some kind of paranormal activity in their home or business. It's not something that's discussed in public for fear of ridicule, but it is happening. Maybe it's happening to you or someone you care about. Make no mistake, this is a serious matter, and my good friends at Paranormal Contractors treat it with the seriousness it deserves. Paranormal Contractors will come to your home with the latest and best technology to investigate, authenticate, and remediate your ghost or demon problem. Why not put your mind at rest and take that first step? Call them at 1-866-724-0800. 1-866-724-0800. Or email them at paranormalcontractors at gmail.com. And tell them Richard sent you. Check out their YouTube channel. Paranormal Contractors, for things that go bump in the night. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Monday. Dr. Chandra Wickramasinghe is standing by to discuss our cosmic ancestry in the stars, the panspermia revolution, and the origins of humanity. I just wanted to remind those of you Patreon donors that one week from tonight, next Monday, April the 29th, I'll be doing my regular monthly exclusive online chat for whistleblower tier level supporters. That will be from 8 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern. 
and my monthly exclusive video chat from 8.30 to 9 p.m. Eastern for our Star Chamber tier level supporters. That's Monday, April the 29th. And if you'd like to get in on these exclusive chats with me, go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet and consider becoming an official donor. What I so enjoy about being a broadcaster, podcaster, is the opportunity to discuss the really big questions and the chance to discuss those questions with some of the world's brightest minds. Where did we come from? Who are we? Where are we heading? My guest is a distinguished astrobiologist and an influential proponent of the panspermia theory. And he predicts that 10 years from now, our cosmic origin will be deemed as obvious as the sun being the center of the solar system is considered obvious today. He says the answer is without the slightest hesitation. We came from space. Chandra Wickramasinghe, PhD, is the director of the Center for Astrobiology at the University of Buckingham, a professor of applied mathematics and astronomy. He is the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Astrobiology and Outreach and co-author of Cosmic Womb, his latest, co-authored with Kamala Wickramasinghe and Jesuk Tokoro, is Our Cosmic Ancestry in the Stars. Professor Chandra Wickramasinghe, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Let's start with a definition. What does panspermia mean, literally? Panspermia is a, a coined word of Greek origin, and it's uh, derived from uh, ancient Greece, Greek. Pans meaning everywhere, and spermata meaning seeds. So it re- literally means seeds everywhere. Seeds of life everywhere in the cosmos. Right. So the idea here, the concept is that, that all life on planet Earth, uh, plant life animal life, it all started out in the cosmos. It didn't originate here on planet Earth, correct? That's right. Planet Earth was just a a building site for putting together the very complex components of all life in the cosmos, all life in the universe. And these components are distributed, uh, as I said, in the form of sort of seeds, allegorical seeds, not uh, metaphorical seeds, uh, genetic seeds, and these essentially fall onto every habitable planet that uh, develops in the universe, in galaxies, and so on. And that's how life uh, comes to be. And what was the delivery mechanism? How did they get here? The delivery mechanism is most likely and most, uh, uh, most commonly comets. Comets are uh, objects, icy, watery objects. We think the comets have watery interiors because they have radioactive heat sources, and they have uh, they're, they're known to have large quantities of organic material, organic molecules, and so comets are the incubators as well as the deliverers of uh, living entities right across the galaxies. So every time one of these uh, comets slams into planet Earth, it deposits these single-cell, very simple single-cell organisms on the planet's yeah, surface. Right. Yeah, it's uh, it, not so much when it slams 
into comets do slam onto planets like the Earth from time to time. We know that a comet hit the Earth 65 million years ago, and that didn't cause uh, the inception of life as much as the death of life. It caused the the extinction of the dinosaurs. But uh, more, much more often, uh, the long tails of comets, which are essentially the material that flows out from comets, the evaporated material from comets. And this is the stuff that contains the seeds of life. And we know that from recent studies that the comet tails have uh, signatures that can be identified with biological material. So whenever the Earth crosses the, the tails of comets, and it does that on a regular basis, then you have the possibility of uh, or the certainty, I, I believe, of uh, living entities, living material, life-related material being introduced to the Earth. And what about space rocks, meteorites, asteroids? Well, meteorites and asteroids also would have the same uh, uh, legacy of cosmic life locked into them because they have been uh, in contact with liquid water at some point in their, uh, in their ancient histories. So they also would carry uh, evidence and perhaps in some cases uh, viable uh, genetic material that can, can enhance and add to the life of planets. But most often I think the meteorites and the asteroids have uh, uh, signatures that uh, indicate the presence of fossilized life, life that has essentially been uh, there at some point in the past and then um, turned into fossils as the water evaporated and the rocks became uh, exposed to the external cosmic environment. So uh, Halley's Comet, for example, swings by its every 70 years, correct? That's right. It all comets uh, have periods and they, they appear and they reappear at regular intervals. Uh, Halley's Comet, as you said, is one such comet. And it's interesting that the last uh, uh, approach of Halley's Comet, the closest approach called Perihelion, occurred in 1986. And this was the first opportunity when astronomers were able to use space technology to study a comet. And what they found really was quite staggering. Uh, already before 1986, before the approach of uh, the last approach of Halley's Comet, uh, myself and my colleagues, and notably Sir Fred Hoyle, we had developed the theory that is called cometary panspermia, which means that comets are the carriers and the amplifiers of life. And on the basis of this theory, we predicted that Comet Halley when it was inspected at close quarters, would be a very, very dark object. Uh, on the surface, it would look like uh, a lump of, a gigantic lump of coal. And the opposing point of view that astronomers uh, had at the time, the majority of astronomers, thought it would be a, a really sparkling, bright snow field. And... Uh, and to this end, they essentially turned the apertures of the cameras almost to nothing, just like when you're photographing a snowfield. And when the, the spacecraft uh, got very close to the comet and everybody was watching this on, on their television screens all over the world, it appeared that there was nothing to see. And the simple reason was that they had closed the apertures so so much, expecting a bright snowfield, and the comet actually turned out to be 
a very, very dark object, darker than the darkest coal. So this was the first major setback for the conventional idea that comets were just inorganic, lifeless balls of ice. And so from that time onwards, I think comets have been, become more and more interesting to me and to the people who have been following the panspermy ideas. Comets are certainly uh, organic in, in a, to a very large extent, and all the signatures of life are present in a comet. For example, a few few uh, years ago, there was a comet called Comet Lovejoy, which was examined at very close quarters by radio astronomers all over the world. And they found uh, a mixture of uh, sugars and um, methyl alcohol flowing out from the comet. And it was like so it's equivalent of 500 bottles of wine per second. Now, how does all this alcohol come and sugar come? It's clearly fermentation products of Fermentation? Bacteria. Ah, I was just going to say, you need bacteria. You need bacteria yeah. for fermentation. Mm, yeah, that's what it has to be. Uh, exactly as Louis Pasteur in, in 1862 pronounced that life is always derived from life. Life begets life. And he, I think, is really the very important... A uh, person who uh, advanced the panspermia idea to a very large extent. He showed that the earlier ideas uh, of Aristotle were wrong. Aristotle, in the third century BC, pronounced that life is generated spontaneously from non living substances. Abiogenic. Abiogenic. And he didn't call it abiogenic in the third century BC, but this idea of spontaneous generation of life from non-life, life just appearing easily, uh, was was something that Aristotle pronounced, and it was it just rattled through the centuries, and people were from time to time through the Christian era they were finding experiments that uh, challenged this, but they, they were all sort of ignored largely until Pasteur in 1862 showed that uh, from very, very careful experiments in the laboratory, showed that uh, life at a microbial level at any rate is always derived from pre-existing microbes. You've got to have microbes to make more microbes. And so this is the theory of biogenesis, not abiogenesis that Pasteur um, Pasteur essentially pronounced. And that's led to the ideas that uh, I have taken uh, further forward in the 1980s, the theory of uh, cometary panspermia, that life is carried now, right through the universe. Now, the planet Earth is roughly, what, four and a half billion years old. Uh, yeah. Now, how long did it take to cool? Because I'm guessing it had to cool before... Uh, you know, any transplant uh, could take place from uh, cosmic, uh, cosmic uh, cells coming to, to the planet. When, when did those cells first sort of take root on planet Earth? Well, I think the, the evidence now is quite clear from geology. We know that the, the, the Earth had something like 4.5 billion years ago, which may be about, a, about uh, just 0.1 a billion years after it formed, or 0.2 billion years after it formed, was uh, at the surface pretty hot. I mean, there couldn't have been any 
abiogenesis happening, but there were locations on the planet that could uh, accumulate, could accommodate life. And indeed, the, the recent studies of rocks that were derived from the most ancient rock formations in Australia show that at about 4.3 billion years, you have the first evidence of life. And this evidence also coincides, the timing of this evidence coincides with an epoch of collisions with comets. And it was an epoch which has been called the Hadean Epoch, the Epoch of Hell, because the Earth was like hell at the mm -hmm. time. Impacts were sort of happening every every few years, something that were huge impacts. And it is precisely at that moment in time that we now have evidence of the first microbial cells. And then, from then on, for two billion years, uh, nothing further happens. You get these little cells, single cells, um, uh, producing more single cells, and so on. So uh, separating if, mitosis. Well, mitosis and just producing more and more of the same thing, and no evolution, no cosmic evolution, no, no biological evolution. And that had to await uh, a further lot of comets coming in and introducing other genetic uh, novelties to the, the tree of life. So every time in the history of the Earth when you have uh, brand new developments happening, they happen very suddenly. There are long periods of stasis when nothing happens, and then suddenly you get these impacts. And the impacts also of uh, the timing of these impacts have been recorded by geologists and by scientists recently, and they match the uh, the, the appearance of new forms of life, the extinctions of life, and so on. So comet impacts and the development of life have been really are very intimately connected throughout the geological record. So let's say the next giant snowball that comes hurtling towards the Earth, this time it's got more complex uh, organisms, maybe a virus mm -hmm. um, or, or bacteria. Mm. Uh, how then is that is that genetic material that's in those viruses trans, uh, uh, transferred into the cells, the single yeah, cells? Yeah, that that seems to be what happened right through the process of uh, evolution. In fact, at the last stages of of evolution of mammals and of uh, anthropoids and uh, hominids and so on, you you find instances where. Uh, the, the, the involvement of viruses is actually absolutely certain. The development of, of placental, ma placental mammals, for instance, appears to be connected with a huge surge of, of viruses in, in uh, placenta of mammals. So, and, and similarly, the development of uh, uh, what is called speech and, uh, speech and expression, oral expression in uh, monkeys and humans and so on, uh, are connected with something called the FOXP genes, which uh, have almost certainly come. So viruses from uh, are involved in all of these recent developments of life and recent uh, advances of life, if you like, to see it that way. And they continue to uh, to, to to do the same job as uh, time uh, goes on. And so this is what happened. It's called horizontal gene transfer. Is the recognized uh, uh, term that biologists use 
for this process. They have uh, viruses uh, just swapped between animals uh, and um, contribute to, to evolution. But the, the standard earthbound theories tell you that the virus, these viruses are just uh, uh, exchanged between animals on the earth, between animals and butterflies and, and so on, insects and so on. And, but, but I think the much bigger picture is that, and the more, more interesting picture is that, the, uh, that this is connected with a much bigger universe. In fact, confining life to the earth is completely an erroneous proposition, as it turns out from all the evidence now. The Earth's biosphere does not end at the top of the atmosphere. It extends on and on and on. And I think we are connected intimately with the entire galaxy and with uh, much further out in space. Where did these uh, these viruses, germs, bacteria, where where in the universe did they come from? I mean, is it limited to... Uh, for example, the, the, our galaxy, uh, or did they come even further out? I think, I mean, the evidence that we have from from stellar spectroscopy, astronomical spectroscopy, tells us that there's a, there's a, the, the, all this material, the dust and this in space, uh, fully matches the properties of bacteria and viruses. There's, there's absolutely no question of, of, of the connection between um, biological particles, both bacteria and viruses, and the cosmic dust that is in our galaxy. But I think there are, there's evidence of dust in other galaxies, in distant galaxies, even in the most distant galaxies that have been observed now. There are, there are more than a hint of uh, very complex organic molecules, and I think these must be connected also with the, the same process, namely that of... Uh, life being uh, exchanged and, and distributed um, th throughout, essentially throughout the widest possible region of the cosmos. GetTheTea.com was built on their unique blends of organic, non-GMO, caffeine-free herbal teas. They can help keep your liver, kidneys, and colon healthy. But I want to take a moment to tell you something else I found on GetTheTea.com. It's a dietary supplement, an immune support formula made from a family of mushrooms called cordyceps. Cordyceps have been used in China for thousands of years as a tonic food and herbal medicine. Eighth element made from cordyceps stimulates the immune system and can help balance blood sugar levels and increase physical stamina and endurance. Eighth Element is the most potent cordyceps product available, 400% more potent than other manufacturers' blends, and it's been shown in clinical trials to increase stamina by more than 30%. That's why it's so popular with athletes, but Eighth Element is also great for the elderly and people suffering from chronic fatigue syndrome. I take two capsules a day with a meal and it gives me the energy to get through the day. Try 8th Element Immune Support Formula made from cordyceps. Only available at GetTheTea.com As you're staring up at the night sky, ever wonder who's staring back? No, me either. 
But I guess he better say it because of Richard, you know, he's all wrapped up in this stuff. <laughs> Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Chandra Wickramasinghe, PhD and Director for Astrobiology at the University of Buckingham is here discussing the panspermia hypothesis. So then how old is our DNA? I think it's as old, almost as old as the universe, not quite as old as the, uh, if, you, if you think that the universe started with the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago, there, there had to be maybe a lapse of time of something like a billion years before anything like galaxies, stars, and molecules could have formed. But as soon as such uh, possibilities arose, as soon as conditions were right for uh, biology to survive and exist, it existed and it multiplied and it continued multiplying as the universe uh, expanded, as new stars and new galaxies formed. And recently, I think the, the, the very exciting story in relation to our Milky Way, our, our galaxy, is that um, astronomers have discovered a huge number, a vast number of uh, habitable exoplanets. And these are planets that are like the Earth. Uh, they're supposed to be in what's called the Goldilocks zone, where conditions are just right for life to survive and life to exist. And there is a huge number of these in the galaxy, almost one for every star that you can see in the night sky. So. 20 years ago, it was believed that these might be very rare, that maybe the Earth was even uh, unique in being uh, being a possible home for life. But now the situation is totally so different that the conditions appear to be just right in hundreds of billions of planets that are everywhere, in, the, in certainly in our galaxy. And the nearest such uh, uh, planetary system or planet, Earth-like planet, is not so far away. It's about four light years away, which is sort of spitting distance from... <laughs> spitting <Alpha>. distance. <laughs> the planet is called Proxima B. Uh, that's been discovered only a couple of years ago. So, the, so the, the, the suitable homes for planets, uh, the, the places where these uh, building blocks of life, these very complex building blocks of life, could settle... Uh, add the services and get together and become very similar to what's happened on the Earth. Uh, the, 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 this, this certainly is happening everywhere. The Earth is by no means unique in um, being the home of life of all sorts. That, now, these exoplanets, uh, if they're similar conditions, would we then expect uh, the flora and fauna on those planets to have... Uh, evolved in a similar pattern. So, for example, they would have elephants, they would have, uh, you know, birds, and they would have oak trees, etc. I, my, my personal belief, I don't have any any hard scientific evidence for it, for saying this, except as a conjecture. I think that is based on on what we sort of vaguely know about uh, how life gets together from these bits and pieces. I think there would be. A, a vast amount of overlap between the life that exists here and the life that exists on these other habitable planets, assuming that the habitable planets have exactly the same 
conditions, the watery conditions, the atmosphere conditions that we have on the Earth, because the components are going to be the same. Components are truly cosmic, and if these components uh, got together in certain ways, then we would have very similar life forms. But the life may be, may be different to the extent that elephants are different from humans, right? But the, the, the basic uh, body plans, the basic uh, structures, the basic uh, engineering aspects of, uh, of living systems would be universal. Tell me about uh, you and your colleague, uh, Sir Fred Hoyle, and how you originally, and, and this is again, is, is prior to uh, the arrival of Halley's Comet in 1986, where you had actually something sort of tangible, you know, to to look at. But how did you uh, formulate this this uh, panspermia uh, theory, and and when? Well, I think it's, it's it's really started when I first went to Cambridge in 1960 to to work with Fred Hoyle as his research student, and I started working on a problem to do with the composition of interstellar or cosmic dust. In 1960, astronomers almost everywhere in the world had decided that these uh, interstellar dust particles that you see everywhere, I mean, you see between g gas clouds, within gas clouds in the, in the galaxy, and if you look at the Milky Way on a dark night, the, the patches and striations that you see in between the stars you see a sort of band of stars across the Milky Way, but in between those stars, you see dark patches of different shapes and uh, like elephant's trunks and so on. And these are vast clouds of microscopic dust particles that block out the light from distant stars. So what are these particles made of is the question that I began to ask myself. And uh, people had asked this before for 20 or 30 years, and they had come to the conclusion that the dust was almost certainly like the icy particles, ice grains that you see in the Earth's upper atmosphere. In the cumulus clouds of the Earth's atmosphere, you have tiny crystals of ice, microscopic crystals of ice. And so it was believed by astronomers, uh, almost without exception at the time, that the interstellar dust was just ice particles, microscopic ice particles, micron-sized ice particles. Now, when I began to investigate the nature of the dust particles from observations, new observations that were becoming available, uh, it very quickly transpired that the ice grain theory was totally wrong. And astronomers had uh, believed that for 30 odd years, and I claimed that it was wrong. And instead of the ice, uh, the material that was dominant in the dust was carbon. So carbon in what form? Carbon, of course, is a crucial element for life. So uh, we got to, we had to examine and investigate what form this carbon took in the cosmic dust. And so over about a 15 or 20 year period, we were beginning slowly to come to the point of view that the, that the carbon was in the form of very complex organic material, polymers, like uh, the components of living cells. We published loads of papers, some 50 or 60 papers in the most prestigious journals saying that uh, the cosmic dust was uh, very complex organic molecules, uh, comprised of very complex organic molecules. It was disputed by lots of people, 
But very slowly, people began to accept this as a possibility, as a very, very real possibility. But then we asked the question, how could it be that molecules that are so similar to living molecules are present in such vast quantities everywhere? And when you begin to think about it, the, 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 the way that you have molecules of such a kind on the Earth is only through biology, right? 99.999% of all the organic material on the surface of the earth is derived from, from living processes, from bacteria replicating and uh, animals dying and so on. Right. And so why not the same thing on the earth, in, in the universe, in, in the much bigger universe? So that was the line of thinking because we decided that to have such complex organic molecules in such vast quantities. Uh, in fact, every other carbon atom, one carbon atom in three in the universe, in between stars, was in the form of these highly complex uh, lifelike structures. So soon uh, it uh, appear, occurred to us that this has to be biology. Why confine biology to the Earth? Biology is, after all, the most uh, uh, interesting and most informationally rich system that we can ever think of. And uh, and so to confine this to the earth and to say that it happened on the earth is, uh, is perhaps unnecessary. And then we began to look at the arguments for the earthbound theories of abiogenesis. And we began to see that it was really on, based on a very flimsy um, structure. There was no nothing really strong about the arguments that. Uh, Oops. Uh, that. Okay. Continue. Uh, continue. Okay. So when we when we looked at the evidence of uh, for in support of the ideas of spontaneous generation on the earth, it, it looked very very feeble. And so we asked the question: Why not invoke biology on a cosmic scale? So that was the beginning of the transition from um, from simple organic molecules everywhere that we had already discovered and people were beginning to accept as being valid to the proposition that life itself was involved in making these molecules on such a vast scale. Does this theory continue to be um, controversial or has, I mean, at what point do you think it's going to go mainstream and will be ex accepted as self-evident? I think it's 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 going that way. I think there's there's more and more people who are who are leaning towards it. But uh, you've got to appreciate that uh, abandoning the the standard theory is a major problem for conventional science. Conventional science has uh, been essentially built on the idea that everything can be explained through abiogenesis. Uh, and uh, in spite of experiments that have been done for 50 years in the most sophisticated laboratories, there's been not a, sh not, not a shadow of uh, evidence in favor of that. Nothing has happened so far that tells you that anything as complex as pre-biology or biology certainly can be generated in the laboratory. You need the co a cosmic laboratory to generate life, and so that seems to be the case. But I think the evidence also from... Uh, the atmosphere, upper atmosphere, we've been looking at uh, as, um, collections of particles coming from comets into the upper stratosphere from 2001 and discovering that uh, the, there are biological structures, bacteria, viruses at 
that uh, that appear to be falling from the skies at 40 kilometers, way above the the normal height to which uh, stuff can be lifted uh, from the ground. Uh, these have been published. Uh, they've been criticized by people who don't like the idea that life is coming from outside to say that maybe there are processes that can lift this stuff. That okay, we have we have succeeded in in pulling out bacteria from 40 kilometers, but uh, but the most reasonable explanation they would say is that it came up, it was upwelled from from the earth. Now that has been the the trend over the past uh, decade and a half, but it's becoming more and more difficult to maintain that position because recently, last year, there was uh, a Russian experiment done at 400 kilometers on the outside of the International Space Station, and they have discovered uh, viable microbes. And uh, my colleagues who have been really quite active in atmospheric physics, one particular colleague who's, who was the head of the Antarctic uh, uh, mission, Antarctic, the Antarctic Survey for a long time, he collaborated with me and showed that uh, the Russian experiment can not be explained by in any uh, to any extent by by suggesting that stuff can be lifted from the surface. There's no way in which bacteria particles can be lifted to 400 kilometers. So if that is confirmed, then the game's up for the standard theory. We have absolutely clear evidence of bacteria falling from the sky, uh, from outside, from comets. Uh, evidence from comets also have been accumulating, although people then say that this is just a, a random uh, a fluke that the spectrum of a bacterium looks like, uh, of a comet looks like bacteria, and so on. So there are ways that uh, um, people, that skeptics can try to um, minimize the importance of the new discoveries. But I think the discoveries coming thick and fast in so many different directions. Uh, new epidemics, for instance, are happening. And for instance, now uh, we are at the minimum of a sunspot cycle, the deepest minimum of the sunspot cycle for 100 years. And we are finding that uh, there's there's more in the form of epidemic diseases, new new viruses and new... Uh, uh, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. that whether any of these uh, uh, viruses that are coming here pose a threat to to human health. So you've just answered that question. And those you're saying that those epidemics or those pandemics correspond with the sun cycle. That's fascinating. Yeah, well, that has been, that has been noticed for a couple of, I mean, several decades now that the peaks of the sunspot cycle coincide with peaks of influenza activity, for instance. And... Uh, Deep minima also of the sunspots have been con connected with uh, great pandemics. I mean, pandemics throughout history have come suddenly and disappeared suddenly. And the question is, how does this happen? For example, smallpox, we know that was was rampant in the days of ancient Egypt because ancient mummies have been looked at and there are lesions in, in, in the mummies that are clearly identified, uh, identifiable with uh, lesions due to smallpox. So during the second millennium BC, there were uh, there was smallpox. Then we find that uh, in the throughout the classical period of classical Greece, when uh, guys like Hippocrates were writing 
about medical matters, there's not a shred of evidence for smallpox. So smallpox then disappear, disappears for maybe several centuries and then reappears again. And so this pattern of appearance and, and reappearance, disappearance, reappearance, I think is fully consistent with cometary injections of uh, viruses uh, because comets have periods that range from a few years to a few hundred years for thousands of years and so on. So it all fits very, really quite elegantly with uh, the idea that comets bring these viruses to the Earth uh, on, on a regular basis. What role does cosmic radiation play in mutating the viruses that come to our planet and form uh, new species? I think I, I'm sure it does because uh, because radiation X-rays, hard radiation, uh, is, is known to be mutagenic and causes mutations and so on. But I think that is a secondary uh, effect compared with the with the arrival of new viruses, new viruses that uh, can both uh, have the property of uh, enhancing evolution, enhancing bringing new body plans, new new features to evolving life, and also on occasion causing pandemic diseases. So is it is it possible that that uh, out there somewhere uh, is a a deadly virus uh, for which obviously we have we have no um, immunity, no protection, because we've never been exposed to it before, that there is a, a, a tremendous pandemic waiting out there. Is it inevitable? I think this is a real risk and a real possibility that has to be taken on board. And the idea that uh, we have been suggesting for a few years now, a small group of us, is to, is to have... Uh, a continuing a continual surveillance of the upper stratosphere for incoming viruses. I told you that there are uh, there are um, balloons and satellites that can serve this uh, end, can c collect material that are that is falling from outside, and the uh, the possibility that this material can be analysed, can be tested before it actually falls on on the ground and causes. Uh, Havoc is something that should be really seriously considered. If we are to, uh, if we are to worry about survival on a very long time scale, uh, the, 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 that's, that's something that I think is really clearly desirable, given that we have the technology to do do this, to accept that there is material coming from outside, biological material, to um, to collect this stuff before it actually falls, because it, it takes, for a virus to fall through the stratosphere takes many, several years. And so it, it is possible that uh, we could may, maybe detect pathogenic or seriously pathogenic viruses before it actually falls on the ground and maybe produce and devise uh, vaccines and protection measures to protect ourselves from, from the ultimate uh, destructive capacity that might uh, face us. That's, a, that's a, a real alien invasion that we should be concerned about. Uh, if, if life begets life, then where did the bacteria or the viruses or the, the single cell organisms 
where where did they form? How did they form? They they didn't just form out of out of nothing because life begets life. Well, life begets life on, on a small scale. I think what what we have discovered on the earth is that if you have the uh, the limitations of, of a small system like the earth, then to overcome the improbability of uh, of getting a living system forming is is just horrendous. It's impossible. It's utterly impossible to 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 do, to to, to, uh, to acquire the information content of life. That that's the crucial point. I think that we have been stressing for several decades now. Life has, uh, at the very simplest level, is informationally hugely vast, and to suggest that this information can be derived just from random shuffling is just ridiculous. Random shuffling on a small planet, but if you take the whole universe, and if particularly in particular if the universe is infinite in extent, which is a possibility, it's not the most. Uh, Fashionable, uh, fashionable idea that the universe is infinite. That people now tend to think that uh, everything started with the Big Bang and the universe is in fact finite, even though it's vast, it's finite. If it's infinite, on the other hand, if the universe is uh, inf- the, the Big Bang was just one such one such bang amidst uh, trillions and trillions and trillions of similar big bangs, then the universe has an infinite extent. And in an infinite universe, you could really think of getting all these uh, highly improbable arrangements coming together. Where does consciousness come into this? Uh, I'm not a materialist. I don't believe that, you know, we are sort of flesh robots. Uh, I mean, where do you believe in a divine spark? Where And where does consciousness come in? I think we've addressed this in our book very in several chapters. I think consciousness is, is almost uh, one of the most important unsolved problems in the whole of science. I think it is connected with, with cosmic life, with cosmic biology, and uh, I think we just do not understand the nature of consciousness. I think it is connected with with the arrangements, the molecular arrangements of life. The, uh, uh, the nature of consciousness still eludes us, but I think in the fullness of time, maybe we would regard it as part of the cos- of the cosmic legacy that uh, is connected with panspermia. Professor uh, Wickrama Singha, I, I want to thank you for spending some time with me. And, and how do people get a copy of Our Cosmic Ancestry in the Stars? Well, I think this is still, uh, it's, it's almost out. May, May the 4th or 5th is the publication date. And... Uh, uh, Inner Traditions is the publishing house. It's a um, it's Bear and Company in uh, Rochester, Vermont. Yes, that's the, that's the publishing house. Well, I think it'll be probably in the books bookshops. It'll certainly be on Amazon um, very shortly after the publication date. But it is, I think, well worth reading. I think we we covered a lot of the the material that we discussed today in our conversation in much greater depth and much greater detail in the book. Thank you very much, Professor. I appreciate uh, your time. Thank you. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be right back with a few words about the next episode of Conspiracy Unlimited. 
If you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, or my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, I hope you'll consider becoming an official donor. A donation of $50 a month places you in the star chamber. $20 a month is the whistleblower tier, and a donation of just $10 per month makes you a truth seeker. Star Chamber and Whistleblower members can participate in an exclusive monthly online chat or video conference with me. And all donors are entered into a monthly draw for Strange Planet merchandise. Any monthly amount is welcome and greatly appreciated. To become an official donor, go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Coming up next time, dissecting the new Green Deal and why it isn't new, why it's not green, and why it's no deal. Renowned environmental consultant and former professor of climatology, Dr. Timothy Ball, examines the motives of U.S. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the people behind her. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.